clubhouse. Welcome back to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of the fourth episode of the sixth season of NBC's This Is Us. This episode is called Don't Let Me Keep You. This is Paul. This is Caroline. Tonight, we're going to talk about tough stuff. Dads being abusers, the relationships that they have with their wives and their kids as a result, and the long, hard shadow that they can cast on their family and how hard it can be to get away from it. And how telling just in that description of what you just said, because in reality, his mom died and this story is her funeral. But what you just said is exactly what probably 90% of the audience will come away with. So even in this episode, he overshadowed her funeral and death. Good catch. This episode takes place in three time periods, one with little boy Jack, one with Jack throughout the years, starting with relocating her to cousin Debbie's and a little bit beyond as the kids are small, and then the entire funeral sequence while the kids are in like the seven or eight year old range. Yeah, I think it's that third grade challenger-esque age, right? Let's take a look at Stanley as a character and his pattern of abuse and behavior as we've known. I know since this show has the time jumping aspect and uh, I am positive that there is some person out there that is going to pirate the entire show when it's done and reproduce it in chronological order, but we're not at that day yet. So it can be very hard to keep straight in our minds that sequence of his abusiveness. And when it escalated to the point when Jack felt like, okay, this is enough is enough. He's going to kill mom one day. So the question at hand is given the level of fear and steps taken to avoid Stanley in this episode, does what they've presented so far seem consistent with this he's going to come and find me aspect that didn't seem as obvious building up to this. I have a hard time with Stanley's story. I have a hard time whenever he came on the screen. We had these moments of really terrible. I mean, I can remember that scene in the kitchen where it's like, it seemed like it was one of the very first scenes that we had again, not chronologically, but the way the story was told to us where he, he does get so abusive. And I believe it's Jack who, who goes and tries to stand up for his mom. But then we had that scene where his own father comes to the birth of, or it's, I can't remember if it's Nikki or Jack. I don't remember which birth it is. I think it's Nikki. And offers him a drink from his flask. And Stanley says, you know, I don't drink and like brushes him off. So we have that version of Stanley. We have some amount of, do you remember when they showed him with the ice cream and he actually like cut the ice cream container? Yeah. Yeah, Like cake. Remember all that, right? So like some good memories of Stanley. But then of course we have every scene that has to do with his mom being far more dark and fearful of him. I know there's a fan theory out there that Timing wise, it works out that at some point Stanley could have been drafted after he had the boys uh, into the Korean War and that perhaps he had some sort of PTSD. Fans point to the the patterns that we have between the generations and that Nikki and Jack had PTSD issues from their time at war. And then maybe this was some sort of mirroring of some sort of issues, especially the drinking, obviously, Nikki and Jack. That was a huge part of this. So are we to look at that as like, okay, so then relationships change. You know, once he came back, supposedly, or whatever, something happened that made him start becoming a drinker. We're unclear exactly. Right. That's just to reiterate what Caroline just said. That is only a fan theory about the totally, war. It yes. has not been on screen. No. So don't be confused if you're like, what episode was the Korean War? It wasn't on there. It was just people <laughs> who are saying that timing wise, it could have been that this could be. Now, here's the thing. We still have more episodes in this season. I don't want to go back and visit Stanley, but maybe we will. I don't know. And maybe it's going to backfill what his, what the you know straw that breaks the camel's back for him and going into drinking, going down this, this dark path. I don't want to minimize any part of the abuse that this family experienced from him. So I'm going to say that as a huge disclaimer. I am trying very hard to tease out the very bully, harsh, physical nature of the way that he acted in a lot of the things that we saw him in versus the 
I'm going to hunt you down stalker predator nature that he was presented in this episode. To me, those characters are different. If I saw those same two characters on the screen at the same time, I would say, well, this man who sits on his recliner drinking beer every night is something to be feared for sure. But if I'm at a friend's house or if I go out of town many states away, I'm not thinking he's going to show up. Like, that's not in this guy's M.O. He's just an asshole who drinks and beats his family. As long as you stay out of the radius of the Kind recliner. of his arm swing, almost, <laughs> right? right? Then, and then for the most part, you can avoid him, right? Because that's what it showed the boys doing all the time. They would hide in their room. Or on that one Thanksgiving, they just left and went and had dinner. They didn't sit at dinner saying, do you think he's going to come find us? Do you think he's going to go restaurant to restaurant yeah. and try to find us? Like, there wasn't that fear there. Versus his wife, you know, Marilyn. Marilyn has a very different relationship with Stanley and their dynamic of how that abuse happened is not as clear to me. So maybe he did seek her out at friends' houses. Maybe he did follow her somewhere some at some point and do something, you know, I don't know. But there definitely seemed to be this sense of if you're out of the house, you're safe. If you look at it through Jack's lens, if you look at it through Marilyn's lens, it definitely seems like just because she's physically away from him, by no means does that mean he can't physically come get her. Now, mentally, emotionally, can he still get her? Absolutely. She seemed to be afraid he could physically come and get her. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of that? I mean, I know you use the word consistent. I'm, I'm struggling a little with that because the man's history seems to have changed. They show different points of his life. And he seems like he was not an inconsistent character, but that through life he changed for sure. We don't know exactly why or what, you know, what caused this. I don't know. I mean, can you feel a difference between that stay at a arm's reach versus I will hunt you down? Does it matter? Am I am I just being too specific? For the purpose of the show, we might be getting overly specific and trying to to sort out what variety of abuser he is. I've looked it up on the internet just briefly. And there are categorically, I guess, ways that you can look at abusers in terms of like patterns and that kind of stuff. But doesn't it more like comes down to what they care about, not how they enforce their abuse on others. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, is it right to think that the umbrella feeling is control? Yeah, but it's how they how they go about doing it. Is it some of some of them are like, I'll do it with the back of my hand. Some are like, I'll gaslight you or make you think that I'm a victim of, of you. Um, mm. Do you think that it's plausible that maybe part of his mental abuse of Marilyn was that, that concept, that gaslighting concept of if you ever leave, I will find you. And so that is what is like festering in her, even though we don't ever see him you know, follow her to a bowling alley, follow her to a friend's yeah. house, go to the grocery store and find her like nothing. Like we don't ever see that, but there would be levels of emotional and mental abuse as well. Particularly she fit into that role of his, his personal servant, you know, or like, yeah. like needed to refill his, his glasses and, and stuff like that. I have a, I have a friend that noticed this behavior about her father-in-law um, that made her just sick. It was the, Sound of a straw and ice tinkling against a glass. Tink, tink. And that was what that man had trained her mother-in-law, his wife, into meaning, I need a refill in my in my, in my tea glass. Mm, it's like ringing a bell. So you have that relationship. You have this sense of ownership for that man, right? And you take away that thing that he owns in his mind. So now I think you might be in fear of that wounded pride aspect of it. Okay, now we've changed the game a little bit. We're not going to stick around to find out what the answer is, but it might be different than what we what we what we knew coming forward or no, what we knew previous to now. Right. So I mean as as much as we can try to dissect it, I think we just have to take it at face value that Marilyn was terrified that he was going to find her. That's and, all that really matters. And yeah. Jack also, when, you know, when she says, I made a mistake and I called him for my tea set and all that, oh, my heart was like breaking because I want to be like... Now he knows what to break. Yes. 
Yes. Like in what universe does your tea set not get smashed to smithereens? Like, mm, Marilyn is a tough one because I definitely feel like she, her heart is so confused. Her mind is so confused about things like calling him. Like it, it, it felt like, no, please never contact him. Like she was almost in like witness relocation program, you know, and it was exactly. like, oh my yes. gosh, why, why would you do that? But I mean, I, I guess there's like these lapses of like thinking somehow, somehow there'd be some way that he would listen to reason and send her, send her important stuff to her, but, oh, it's, it's so stressful. This episode was hard. It was very stressful. I think if you're listening to this, you probably shed some tears when you're watching this. My eyes certainly filled up a couple of times during this. Um, and it was at very, very small moments, but let's work through the plot a little bit. This is an important episode in that we are foreshadowing the loss of another mother, uh, that we already know is coming with Rebecca. It is rare for This Is Us to spend the whole show on one character. Yes, we don't typically get to spend one episode with any one person like this. This is so unusual, but you're so right. I mean, not just the the death of his mother, but the relationship and the regrets that Jack has with his mother, 100% were the motivating factors for the entire rest of the story. Like if you look at Jack as the starting point and then he finds Rebecca and then the two of them become like the next two. Jack's desire to have a different future for his family than what he experienced. It wasn't a terrible idea to go back and and remind the audience and explore a little bit of like what even happened to his mom. Like we have no idea. Last we ever saw, he was picking her up to drive her somewhere. So let's go to the beginning then. Little Jack and his sled going up and down the sled hill. What what were you thinking when Jack comes home and, and mom offers to hide the sled? I was kind of surprised that she was smiling at him. I was watching for such small little like moments that maybe it's silly, but she was smiling at him and, and she didn't, she in no way was like worried or upset or anything for his safety or for anything like, like, like if one of our kids came up with a broken sled, I'd be like, oh my God, what happened? Did you have an accident? Are you hurt? Right. Those are all the things I would say. Really, it should paint a whole picture that the only thing she says is we'll hide the sled and we don't have to tell your dad because his response to everything, the entire world revolves around. It has nothing to do with like, well, if you broke the that, I mean, how hard did you hit something? (laughs) You know, did you hurt yourself? Anything? No concern. The main concern is that the father doesn't find out to me. That is the big picture. That's what you need to know about that. They had both a spoken and unspoken agreement between the two of them to protect each other and to keep each other's secrets. It's this scene that I think ties into the the idea that's discussed in later scenes with the concept of being someone else's hero. Jack, in that scene that I'm talking about, says, I'm not anybody's hero. And because Mike had said, you're your mom's hero. It's these little moments, right, of it's that make heroes I feel like audiences might also be able to take it from from a different level. If, if you can, for a moment, take the abuse portion out of it and just talk about the bonding between moms and kids versus dads. Or, or you can say whomever works outside the household in a lot of ways, too. Whoever works outside the household versus the primary caregiver. I know that there's things like when my dad worked late, that my mom would be like, let's order pizza and get a pay-per-view movie and stuff like that. You know, stuff we don't do when dad's around. There's yeah. a different bond between moms and kids. Did you experience that or do you feel like, I, I don't know, I don't know if anyone can look past the giant looming cloud of this abusive father, but if we can, I think we can find some other little themes too. Oh, for sure. There were stricter rules. It's not, and to be clear, uh, I'm not talking about myself as, as being a product of what I would call abuse or anything resembling anything like that. But the idea of of a different laxer set of rules being in place when, when mom was running the show versus dad. Yes, I can definitely identify with that. I think even keeping secrets, like, I mean, I'll say as like an adult, like me and my mom will go shopping and we'll like leave bags in the car. Now this is silly. My father's not going to do anything. You know, he might roll his eyes or something, but he's not going to do anything. But like little secrets with mom, you know, little bonding secrets where you're like, oh, don't tell dad. <laughs> like we're eating the extra chocolate or something silly. There, There is some 
something like like that you have that's just with your mom, you know, that can be this sort of extra little something. Even soup and beanos? <laughs> soup and beanos? Those are hot dogs, Polish, oh, not well. beanos. <laughs> In uh, my family, hot dog and beanos is a whole thing. So, <laughs> yeah. Hot dogs and soup. Yeah. I mean, just the way that she, they had this ritual, you know, she had this comforting ritual that she did with him obviously meant so much to her. And as we move to, you know, from that sled story, as we move forward to, you know, the next portion of it, and now he has kids of, you know, sort of similar age to what he was when the sled breaks. And we have that moment at the very end there where he chooses to make the hot dogs and make the soup. He doesn't even remember that when his mom comes to visit and she tries to make that for lunch. And he's like, what are you talking about? Maybe that was Nikki. And she's like, it was you, okay? You know, and she's like serious about it. There's some little rituals and stuff that I think moms do for the kids that maybe the kids don't even remember. You know, I'll be like, do you remember that we used to do that for you by saying that little song to you or whatever? It goes back to what we were speaking about last week and maybe even the week before about memories and how like a kid sees a moment and a parent sees a moment and it can just be like completely different. You know, like Jack just ate lunch, but she made this ritual lunch of this soup and hot dogs, you know, and it was like very important that what it was. Well, like these phone calls, Jack is told in the more recent time frame over and over again how important these phone calls were whereas in the few times that they show us her calling jack on their sunday ritual it's not that he was trying to get off the phone or anything like that it's just that sometimes he had a lot to be engaged with right then right and so he couldn't give it like a hundred percent attention right then you tie in that that sort of women of that generation well, then I won't bother you. I'll just get going kind of attitude with the name of the show. Don't let me keep you makes it so that these these phone calls have a, a small amount of substance compared to what you what Jack in his final analysis of the whole thing would have preferred. Yeah. And I would even say that the the idea of those little small moments, though, the sharing of hot dogs and soup. And I don't even think she ate any. I think she just watched him eat his lunch. These very small moments. And that's what his experience with his mother was. These very small, isolated moments, these very short, abbreviated phone calls because life outside of the two of them loomed large, whether it was his responsibility as a father to triplets and a husband and all the things going on there, or whether as a child, avoiding his father and protecting his mom overshadowed every other aspect. I don't get the impression that him and his mom went to the zoo on Saturdays or got to go out to the movies and play games. And it, like, it seemed like life was dictated by their father And then now in adulthood, Jack's life, again, just responsibilities loom large, not negative, but just they don't really have this this deep relationship. And at the same time, I think they have this super deep bond of like survivorship, you know, that's an excellent observation. It's uh, the idea of a of a bond and the closeness that two people can feel from that and the various depth of relationship in terms of like, well, I know what kind of waffles you like and that kind of shit. Those aren't the same thing. They can, uh, you know, a person with in a relationship with another person, they can have some of those things overlap perhaps, but not necessarily. They don't have to, you know, that's very interesting. If you think about it, you could feel a particular bond with somebody like the, I'd take a bullet for you level bond. Right. But you know, you don't know that much about them. Have you seen them in the last 10 years or whatever? Or you don't know that they have a cat. You don't know what they do for their hobbies. You don't know she has a boyfriend. You, You don't know anything about day to day, but at your core, you know, they are, Yeah, Yeah, they are solid. They are each other's backs, you know, always and always have been. So you're right. It's a it's a different relationship born of tragedy in many ways, you know, born of, of terrible circumstances that they live together through. You know, I think you see that in different things, you know, where where people have experienced a tragedy together. And again, they couldn't tell you details about each other's lives, but they would do anything for that person. Yeah. They are of another generation and not even of our generation. Like for us, we're in our 40s. We are the Pearson kids. 
just because you and I see Jack as our age on this show, he's not of right. our generation. He's our dad's age, pretty much. He's our dad's age. We're talking about people in their 70s. Yeah. So then now you got to go to like his mom is another generation beyond that. So parents and kids didn't necessarily have that fuzzy wuzzy, you know, type relationships with kids that, you know, we may have with our kids or Jack even might have with his kids. There's a, there's a different level. So just being respectful towards her, protecting her, that's being a good son. Very different the way things, you know, play out. You know, I was just reading some of this, this abusive stuff and one of the qualities was trying to instill in, say, your male children this idea of manliness, right? And that came up and I'm pretty sure he called the kids sissies at one point or oh, another. Oh, yeah, because always with Nikki especially. But then say carry on to Jack and he doesn't want to do that, but he can't quite get away from it with Kevin. Yeah. He calls him soft. Right. And it pushes him physically, you know, about not, I don't mean physically pushes him, but pushes him physically. Like you want to be big, you want to be strong, you want to be, yeah, you want to be a physical specimen of a man, you know, that's important. That concept of, of escaping the influences of a, of a parent, no matter how hard you try, are kind of inescapable unless you just completely rewrite your personality, which Jack tried the, his best to do, particularly that fourth segment where Marilyn visits the Pearson little kids. And she's so unable to be present that she's so busy knitting um, because she's so worried about is Stanley going to show up? Could you imagine being in, in such a fearful place of, of seeing another person like that her words got to me when she said do you think he knows where i am do you think he knows i'm here you could hear a little quaver oh my gosh because because you're even jumping to the next step and saying well what if he shows up there she's too scared to even have a conversation at the mere thought that he could know that she's there not even show up just know that she's there is enough to scare her. Oh, goodness. I mean, this was a difficult episode to to see this level of hurt and fear out of a family and just generationally how it was passed to, to Jack and how everything he was better in terms of he would say things like, no, I don't think he thinks he knows you're here. You know, like he seemed to be able to have a little bit more distance from that fear, but she just was like radiating it. I, it was hurting my heart. It really hurt my heart. The smallest of moments hurt my heart. All of them jumping at the door slam, not even slam, but just closed at the funeral and the whole place jumped and mm-hmm. the idea that he, it could be him, it breaks my heart. The control and the level of influence some like Stanley would have over these people. And I think what made my, my, my frozen tiny heart go out to Marilyn's character was how much she reminded me of my grandmother in the way that she did things. You know, uh, she kept coming back to the ice skating, right? Yes. Or she insisted about the hot dog and tomato soup to adult Jack, even though he doesn't remember it. Um, These are variations of themes and conversations that I have either had with my grandmother or seen play out between her and my father. Him not remembering something, her insisting on something, me saying that one particular candy or ice cream or something was my favorite. I'll give you an example. When I was like six, uh, I had this horrible medicine that I needed to take for asthma. The best way for me to take it was to sprinkle it on applesauce and then take it with a spoonful of applesauce, like Mary Poppins, right? I'm not kidding you. For the rest of my life, as far as grandma was alive, if I visited, there was applesauce in her fridge. Whether or not I had taken that, I mean, I didn't take that med for the rest of my life, but she had the applesauce. Oh, but that's like the sweetest thing. Doesn't that kind of bring a tear to your eye that she would like? Well, now it does. Yes. Yes. You know, when you're that age, you're like, Grandma, I don't take that medicine (laughs) anymore. Right, 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 right. But yeah, but this is the same kind of thing, though. Generationally, the same oh, kind yeah. of characteristics. Yeah, she she is representative of our grandparents. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, my grandmother is 95. And, you know, every single time we go over there, she's 
like, I have juice boxes for the kids. And my, our children are 19 and 18. Like juice boxes are not necessary. <laughs> but it, but but that's what she, again, there was a moment in time when she saw them drink a juice box as a small child. And she thought, I should always have juice boxes available, period. Because that's what these children like. And it underlines the level of paranoia that that Stanley had injected into her because she loves these kids. Oh, yes. You know, she wants that connection. She wants to go ice skating with them. She's, she's making them, you know, she she made the little covers for their skates, I think. The little the little uh, blade covers that are like, there was like the yeah, little knit. Right. Like she had them ready for when they would come visit. Like that's how much she had the applesauce, Paul. Right. Just exactly. in case Paul showed up, she exactly had the right. applesauce. And it's like she had those skates under her bed, hoping, wondering what, what day they're going to come. But in this visit, she, she just knitted. Because she was scared. Because, yeah. And so just how much he has stolen from her and from all of them. You know, he even stole her being a grandmother. Mm -hmm. You know, he stole her being able to be a great mom, you know, to her fullest ability. She did the best she could. But and that's what I think Jack's eulogy ultimately was, was she did the absolute best she could under the circumstances. But then he even stole opportunity to love her grandchildren and to be present and to be there with them whether it's because she had to be far away so they couldn't go visit or whether even when she came to visit her mind was so frightened she couldn't be there with them we get the screeners so i have no idea if there's going to be any warning prior to this episode but it would not be out of line as far as i'm concerned for them to put something up there because because of how they hit those tiny moments when even in the eulogy the heavy footsteps the moving of a chair the crack of a beer like though speaking those things aloud to some audience members is going to be too much to hear and to experience and this is us isn't typically that show, you know, there's a lot of things that you can watch. And, you know, I was kind of joking with you that I think some people might treat it like their stories, you know, it's just, I'm watching my stories, you know, so it's just characters that you like to see what their next step is and their thing. But this episode, I think is going to get into people's hearts and fester in there. Why don't we move on to the funeral sequence, the Jack arriving at or leaving for Debbie's and and so on and so forth. Were you aware that Cameron Mannheim was going to appear on this as a co-star? I didn't know. I didn't know she'd be playing Cousin Debbie. She's a great actress. We know her from lots of things over the years. I want to back you up for just one second. Were you surprised that Rebecca and the kids did not attend? No. I I was not, I mean, with the combination of Jack keeping his previous life and Rebecca kind of at arm's length Mm -hmm. and then the bad winter conditions, um, it makes perfect sense that he would say, no, no, you barely had a relationship with her. No. And to, and to those of you guys who are like, oh, that's ridiculous. I can't even imagine that, blah, 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 anything like that. Here's the thing. We had three little ones. You attended stuff by yourself. You definitely went to go visit your grandmother by yourself. And I kept the kids here. You went to funerals by yourself. I had to attend my grandparents' funerals by myself because there's, there's just no way to do that. I have a whole thing where I can only play so many roles in a day. And if, if, in the case of my grandparents passing, I needed to be a daughter to my father, whose whose father passed away, or a daughter to my mom as her mom passed away. I needed to be a grandchild and be there to honor my grandparents' death. I needed to to be able to be there for, for aunts and uncles who had lost their parent. I felt like I had too many roles to play that, honestly, it might sound kind of crazy to people. I couldn't also play mom during that time. Like, I needed to play this. And I that might not be the case for most people. If I'm the maid of honor in a wedding, I don't like to bring my kids <laughs> because if I'm supposed to be there for the bride and I'm supposed to do my part, like I want to do my part a hundred percent. So I don't like to have to split that. That might sound crazy to some people, but that's the way I have to do it. And and in this case, I agree with you. It made sense to me that Rebecca and the kids did not go, but I have to say what a relief it was to see them come in the back door when they did. Well, remember, we've been saying that this is Rebecca's season, even though this is Jack's episode. This mm-hmm. is Rebecca's season, and this was the move he needed right then, even though that opening door scared the bejesus out of him. 
having the support of his his wife and his kids there. I think when he had that moment where he called Rebecca because he found the ice skates underneath her bed, I think that's when she packed up the kids. What do you think? Yeah, that makes sense to me. And and it was just one of those things where it was right for during the time because there was, I mean, we went through days and nights where he was there at Debbie's. They showed him sleeping on the couch and waking up and stuff like that. Like it wasn't just like one day. So there was more time there that I don't think it would have been appropriate for Rebecca and the kids to be running around or being there. At the end there of the eulogy, them showing up, for me, it was reassurance that you've left that world behind, that as you're burying your mother, you're burying that life in a lot of ways. And and your next steps are sitting right in front of you. You don't have to get in an empty car by yourself and sit with your empty mind all the way home. You're, you're going to be surrounded by the people who know you and love you. So I think it was lovely. And I do think, as, as you pointed out, for it being Rebecca's season, what a great light to cast her in, in that she knew when to show up. She mm-hmm. knew when to come and comfort him. She knew when to back off and give him some space to handle what he needed to handle. We don't get a lot of moments of people recognizing Rebecca's great job as a mom and a wife. This was great. Cousin Debbie, soft place to fall, huh? <laughs> she was harsher than I expected her to be. <laughs> Honestly, she was harsher than I thought. I, I've got to tell you, my my here's my little Easter egg thing that I feel like is going to come popping up later. If it does not come up about whether or not they serve a lunch at Rebecca's <laughs> funeral, then I do not understand TV because the amount of times that the Cousin Debbie was like, we're having it at two. We're not serving a lunch. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to serve them a meal. And then like later on, she's talking on the phone. She's like, we're not serving a meal. Like... I don't, I don't know how many of you guys have been a part of planning a funeral, but what you serve as a meal is like a part of it. So there's a lot going on here. Here's my theories on that. And they're weak theories. Oh, great. (laughs) One is that Marilyn had everything prearranged. And so I'm impressed about, to be honest. And so a meal would have been like an add on, which would have been Debbie's got to pay for this thing. And maybe she doesn't have that extra couple thousand bucks to pay for everybody's lunch that day, right? She's Um, very practical. The other one, and this is a little more thematically correct, is the don't let me keep you. Oh, Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to obligate you to a meal and have to sit here and stuff. Yeah, I'm Uh, not going to be more trouble than I need to be. I like that. Kind of aspect. I think that's dead on, right? I like that because it's very much like, say what you got to say, have the funeral and you all should go about your lives. I don't want to keep you. Get out of here. We're not having a meal. That makes complete sense. I like that a lot. Again, you know, for you guys who are thinking, why are we spending all this time on Jack's mom? Why are we going backwards in time when we want to be spending time with Rebecca and figuring this stuff out? I think what we're doing is setting the table for what was the relationships between kids and moms and a mom passing away and how that plays out. We're setting the table for Rebecca passing away and how the Pearson kids and how everyone handles it and what they choose to do with their own children, their own spouses, how everyone celebrates Rebecca versus how Marilyn was celebrated or not, however you want to look at this. I think that's dead on. I mean, we've said already that Stanley took a lot away from her life. If you kind of do the math in terms of when Jack liberated her and then when she died by virtue of the age of the kids, you might come up with, she got about 10 years off before she died, give or take. You think? I think so. Maybe maybe 15, but yeah. Somewhere in that 10 range. 10 to 15, yeah. Not more than that. Not more than that. But some of that was in fear. Right. I think all of it was in fear. I don't think any time was not in fear. But the pattern is you get that, you get the 20 or 30 years of, of abusive shit. You get 10 years of fearful better, but then you still die alone, unfortunately. And that's the contrast that Caroline is, I think, uh, building to. Given all of the foreshadowing that they've shown us with the flash forwards, we know that Rebecca is probably going to die surrounded by all of her friends. I think she is going to be surrounded by all of her friends, all of her family in a warm bed. I, that's what I believe. Very planned out. Very, um, again, though, planned out, uh, but very controlled. And as opposed to the sudden death of Marilyn, that was unexpected and everything. This is this is very expected for Rebecca. Let's talk about Mike McCreary. I love Mike McCreary. He's, I think they made him to be the anti-Stanley. Oh, I think he's the anti-lots of things. <laughs> Did you notice that Hotel California t-shirt he was wearing? 
I did not. Yep. said Hotel California on it. Check in, but you don't check out. Oh, gosh. But still, just that sort of, that 70s rock of the Eagles compared to what I imagine Stanley would listen to would be not the same. No. I mean, it definitely implied like a way more laid back guy. Now, here's the thing. What I loved about Mike McCreary is that he's a tough guy. I mean, he looked strong. He looked like he could protect you. He looked like he looked like he rode a Harley. But at the same time, he had such a teddy bear, silly guy quality. Him with the kids at the end doing the skull crusher, which, oh my God, you guys, if you've never experienced a skull crusher as a kid, that was a hot thing to be doing when you were about (laughs) that age. Adults definitely did that. You would hold on to their forearms and they could lift you up by your head it's a whole freaking thing but yeah i mean mike mccreary what a wonderful opportunity to know that she was loved and that she had an opportunity to love someone um having that moment where they like spun the camera around and showed her like as a memory of she sitting around with debbie and then a friend, another friend, and Mike McCreary, and and heard them laughing at the bar and talking and and just enjoying themselves. I mean, you got the feel that she actually had a very full life because, again, talking about it from what the adults see versus what the kids see, Jack kind of imagined his mother like sitting there knitting quietly like an old lady, right? Yeah. When in reality, she's in her yellow dress at a bar talking with her boyfriend, having a cat at home, reading these sexy novels. Like, turns out she's like a full and vibrant woman, you know, who had like a whole life going on. Makes him sad that he didn't know those things. But I got to tell you, as a dad in not a dissimilar situation from from Jack's in terms of having a kid and family and everything... There's only so much you get to go around, right? That you can kind of regret maybe that you didn't do this or that, but don't beat yourself up, Jack, is what I'm trying to say. I'm going to go with it was another time as well in that, again, like, I don't think it was necessarily appropriate for you to know that your mom was reading this sassy novel or whatever. Like, that's something she would have been embarrassed and would have kept to herself. Whereas nowadays, you know, if a mom was walking around with Fifty Shades of Grey, their kids might poke fun or something, but it's not so much of, like, a big secret or, like, that you have to act like that. Not, I don't think so. Not in our household. I think the pandemic has changed dynamics where families know each other a lot better (laughs) for good or for worse. And, you know, they might know those details of the hot dogs and and tomato soup but prior to that I would honestly say there's plenty of people who would not know plenty of stuff about what's going on in their family's households you know much less their parents household their their mother's household yeah now do you fault Marilyn at all for not sharing anything in those phone calls you know she would ask about the kids but for not saying like I got a cat or I have a boyfriend. His name is Mike. Should she have offered up any information or no? Yeah. I mean, she could have. Yes. 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 <laughs> and I don't, fault is a strong word, but I would just say that some amount of responsibility lies on both parties. Right. This, this thing you works both directions. I mean, I have to say that we have people in our life where I make an honest effort to say like, how do you spend your days? What do you spend your days doing? How, what do you, what are you liking to do these days? And when the person says back to you, oh, nothing. I mean, there's only so many times that I can ask. And if you don't tell me anything, I don't know. And then when it's time (laughs) to buy you a gift, I have no idea what to buy you. But you know what I'm saying? Like, and you've been there because we've been like joking back and forth. Like, oh my goodness, are they going to let anything out of the bag here? Like, no, (laughs) you know, we don't know anything about what goes on in their day to day because they choose not to share it. So, you know, I don't know if Marilyn did that for his protection. I don't know if Marilyn just did that because... For once, Marilyn had a little piece of the world all to herself, and she didn't have to share it. And I don't blame her for that, for wanting to keep what's hers, hers. Well, there's this weird phone statement where it's like, I didn't want to bother you with it or, or something along those lines where it's like, I I didn't want to. And it goes along with the don't let me keep you attitude, I think, which was, I guess that that might play into why she didn't give much more. She wanted some updates and stuff like that about the kids, but that was about it. That's what she needed. Right, right, right. Well, and and it was it, that's what made her happy was to hear about the grandkids and all that stuff. She didn't want to bother him with her her life. And, you know, and maybe again, maybe it was on Jack to not say, tell me about what's going on with you. Did you get a pet? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to start poking around with questions. I'll be like, 
uh, are you reading a sexy book? (laughs) Just asking that to see if I could get something back. I don't know. Maybe he should have been asking more pointed questions. Here's a pointed question. Should Jack have just waited a couple days before he called Stanley? That's a really good question. I think I might have called once I got back home and it was over. However, the pressure to get closure on the situation was high. And so if you could take it from that standpoint of like he desperately wanted to feel like he dotted all his I's and crossed all his T's and did everything that needed to be done to close this chapter of his life while he was there in the moment dealing with his mom. It seems like, I mean, that's the final thing is to call him, you know? And, And it definitely felt like a moment of weakness. I mean, he was immediately regretted it. But that's the motivation that I see is needing some amount of closure and maybe some amount of like, he, he said it so harshly, you know, like she's dead, that it was like almost like he was trying to hurt Stanley in some way as well. I think he called because of his own, like a combination of maybe having had some alcoholic intake at the bar that night and his own sense of. I don't know what, fading loyalty to his old man or something, just like I still owe it to him. loyalty? Well, just like I still owe it to him to let him know. That's what I mean about the like clicking off the obligations. Like that's the closure of it, of like not loyalty, but like these are the things you do. You notify people of the death. That's just one of the things, right? Maybe you write an obituary. Maybe you put a public notice out. You call family and friends, right? That's just one of the steps you do. But do you wait a day? Well, that's because in this circumstance, it seemed to surprise him that Stanley would show up. The concept, like when he was like, don't you show up? Like, I mean, he was like, whoa, what? You know, like that came out of nowhere for him. Again, maybe us... And us being Jack, underestimating Stanley. Like, no, maybe he would show up. And here we are saying, well, what is Marilyn worried about? He's not going to show up. Maybe he has the capacity to show up. That moment where he made it sound like he might just show up was uh, like, has he known all along and just not come or, or, or what? Well, that phone call was very quick, but you are right to say... He did not say, where are you? Yeah. (laughs) So kind of implies, at least even in Jack's mind, he would know exactly where to go. Mm. I mean, for most of us, we have a pretty good sense of our spouse's relatives and who they might be closest to and who they might possibly stay with. Right. Would you say that? I mean, most of us know probably where our spouse might run. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I know your cousin Debbie's well (laughs) well enough. I don't know if I know all your cousin Debbie's, but I think I know one of your cousin Debbie's. (laughs) And so in that case, like, I think I would know who to text pretty quick to ask if you're there. So, so given that maybe process of elimination, he had a fairly good guess of where she might be. You're right. Jack wasn't like, ha ha, you don't know where we are and hang up the phone. Like, <laughs> ah, there was definitely a sense that he 100% knew and could get there. I know for most of us, our biggest concerns are our own deaths, maybe the death of our children uh, being a, a very close second. But do you ever consider like how difficult it would be being asked to write the eulogy of your own parent? Yeah, I've thought about it and how... If you could pre-write it, you know, just sort of like write the bulk of it while they're still alive and then just sort of finish it up later. I I actually was having this like thing in my head where I was like, I feel like now I should ask my dad or mom, like, what do you want me to say? Like, actually ask, because I feel kind of like a jerk, like, like, you know, when they were going around, like he didn't know his mom's friends. I was thinking, I know my mom's friends. I would know who to invite. Pointing out, I was like, dad... I was like, who's my dad's friends? <laughs> I know he has work people and I could definitely like send it out to his work people. Who's my dad's friends? Like who would he consider his best friend? Like, I don't, I don't know if I know the right answer. I kind of yeah. need to ask them like, what do you want me to hit upon? Like, like where's like the big hit? Like, here, like <laughs> right. you want like Hanover football or you want like Cornell? Like what, what you like? What, what, what's the big moment here you want me to focus on? Because yeah. I don't want to do it wrong. Right, right. Like, I mean, we've been to a funeral before where the eulogizer 
was a work friend. The things that they could relate all had kind of a worky lens on them. My God, if the best person you can find to eulogize me is a work friend, Caroline. <laughs> Fuck. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. What be, haven't I made clear? To be fair. <laughs> Jesus. To be fair. To be fair. I think sometimes it can be so emotional for the immediate family, the people really, truly closest. That they, I agree. They can't be the one to stand up there, you know? Yes. Um, sometimes I think you do have people who seem awfully periphery, but it's just because maybe it was a sudden death or maybe it was, you know, something very tragic. Maybe the person was very young, something like that, where the people just cannot stand up there and speak about this right now. Paul sometimes turned in his projects on time. <laughs> Paul had salad at lunch, <laughs> right. mostly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Soy free. We're never a stranger at taco day. <laughs> talk for me then i would have no one to talk for me we'd have to find a podcaster from from some other land to come and talk about me god uh, i do get your point though about someone with enough emotional remove that they could be coherent in yeah. in terms of being in front of the people present at the ceremony whatever it is whether it's at a church or at a funeral home or whatever wherever you need to do that so for my grandfather's my aunt spoke and she did a beautiful job she actually wrote wrote a poem it was good it was really good no she, poems it was personal though it wasn't it wasn't like um it wasn't abstract in any way it was a hundred percent about him and their life as kids in the house with them with him as their dad all that kind of stuff right okay? I don't understand poetry when I'm alive though. <laughs> but I went to another one where this was, I was outside. It was just a family friend. The children spoke, but they were so bereft. They cried so much. And and their father was a, was a wonderful man and 100% deserved the, the outpouring. However, and I like hate to be like this, but like we really, as the people listening, you couldn't really understand what they were trying to say because they were truly so upset. It's not like we wanted them to not cry. It's not like we didn't understand why they were crying, but, but you still wanted to, you wanted him to be eulogized. You wanted to hear about his life. You wanted to celebrate the things he had done, but you couldn't really hear between the crying what they were trying to say. And so I understand asking outside people to come in and say something you and I have been to ones where they just invite people up to speak in a way that's like you don't know what you're gonna get sort of grab bag well and it has been you and I have been to two or three where sometimes people say things that are not that nice and it uh, was kind of surprising that yeah. we were all like kind of looking at each other like is this acceptable definitely <laughs> like, coloring outside the normal lines of uh, speaking ill of the dead yes uh, yeah yes Yes, I was definitely thrown. <laughs> it wasn't even like speaking ill, to be honest with you. It was a scenario in which it had been a tough situation growing up. They just didn't feel like making everything rosy and perfect. They just wanted to say it for what it was in terms of a little like Jack. I'm not going to act like everything's perfect and everything went great. I'm going to speak about the elephant in the room and I'm going to acknowledge it for what it was. And it just struck me because I've never been in a situation where someone said it like that, but they did. I've read obituaries on like Facebook and stuff like that because people will share it around when someone writes something so unusual. You are going to be told what's what in that obituary of what that person was actually like. Not, not that, you know, the thing that happens when everyone becomes a saint yeah. The yeah. moment they die, nobody's got a bad word to say about them, right? Mm -hmm. Mrs. Soprano. Lest we speak ill of the dead, <laughs> right? Right. So coming back around, speaking for our parents, oof, that's going to be a day that I, I don't know if I can do it. I'm pretty blubbery when it comes to stuff like that. I, I am a empath person and I absolutely a thousand percent feel everyone's vibes and everyone else crying in the room is just going to make me cry that much harder. <laughs> and so I don't know that I could be the speaker. I'd want to do my parents so, so well in the things I would say about them, but oof. I mean, I have a pretty solid emotional dam, but when it breaks, it doesn't just give a little, it completely breaks. 
<laughs> right? I guess. I don't know. Have I seen I guess I've seen this. Yeah. It might be better off not putting me in that position then. Yeah, you know? but the reality is that, honestly, Paul. That's what the point of this show is, of yeah. this exact episode. This is us. All of us are going to lose a parent or two. Right. All of the parents, yes. All of the parents yes. are going to be lost. As Kevin said in like two episodes ago, mom and dad are going to die. Exactly right. And that is a that is a big moment. You know, looking back, look at that foreshadowing. I didn't think we would have to deal with another parent dying, but mom and dad are going to die might actually be the theme of this whole season in terms of like, we might get some other moms or dads. Whoa. All right, Caroline, well, let's bring this to an end. Okay, Paul, the most crushing moment of this episode was pointing at Paul. Did you have a crushing moment of this episode? I had a crushing moment of the episode, but it's probably going to be different than your crushing moment. I know, that's what I'm asking you. Moment of the episode. This is a crushing moment free for all. My crushing moment was Jack getting home, making the hot dogs and soup for his kids, and needing to run out of the room because his emotional dam finally did break. And he says, I don't have a mom anymore. That was my I might cry now moment. Oh, and you never cry. Sometimes you even act like very like, uh, this show doesn't even get to me. I don't know what people are crying about. Now look at you over there crying. Absolutely. That moment. And if you guys, I we've seen it a couple of times now because we're watching on screeners. We have an opportunity to watch it a couple of times before we talk to you. When Milo turns and looks at Mandy Moore and his face and he says, I don't have a mom anymore. My little heart broke in half. I felt that deep inside me. Oh, that was a lot. That was a lot. If they didn't get you all throughout, (laughs) it's like it's like they went for the gut punch right at the end or maybe a throat punch even. I don't know. They they laid it on at that last moment. And man, I, I could absolutely see, though, again, because this is about patterns and cycles. I can see one of the Pearson kids. It would probably be Kevin because he's sort of the Jack Jack 2.0, right? Once Rebecca passes, I could see him saying to Madison, Cassidy, Sophie, whomever it is, I don't have a mom anymore. And I think that if that doesn't happen, I will be pretty surprised with the writing. (laughs) This is Caroline. This is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us five stars or whatever the highest ranking is on that podcast provider and a review. That'd be great too. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open and we'd love to hear from you.